Hello, this is Peter Woolfolk. First, let me say thank you so much for being a listener. Now, I want to alert you to our shiny new podcast website located at podpage.com. However, you can go directly to the podcast site located at www.publicrelationsreviewpodcast.com. There, you can contact me through email. You can leave a voice message. You can leave a review. You can read an episode blog and frequently learn about the podcast guests. You might also want to suggest podcast topic ideas or even suggest a guest. You can also let me know if you would like to receive our podcast listener logo that you can post on your social media. So I look forward to hearing from you about our new podcast website, www.publicrelationsreviewpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Public Relations Review Podcast and have a great day. Hello, this is Peter Woolfolk, producer and host of the Public Relations Review Podcast. When I conceived this program, my idea was to provide public relations practitioners with a wide variety of solid, useful information and guidance from public relations professionals across America. And we are doing that. I will continue to cover important topics such as crisis communications and artificial intelligence and other such important topics. But I will also address other issues such as diversity in public relations, marketing to women, public relations trends, various data concerns, and much more. From time to time, I will also invite vendors of public relations products on to help you better understand how these products can improve your efficiency and your effectiveness. You will learn a lot from our podcast, so thank you for listening, and please inform your colleagues about the Public Relations Review Podcast and continue listening. Thank you so very much. Welcome. This is the Public Relations Review Podcast, a program to discuss the many facets of public relations with seasoned professionals, educators, authors, and others. Now, here is your host, Peter Woolfolk. Welcome to the Public Relations Review Podcast and to our listeners across America and around the world. Now, as the public relations program, we have featured multiple public relations topics covered by professionals from across the nation, not addressed thus far are public relations issues in public schools. Now, that changes with this program today. This is our first ever roundtable discussion with education public relations professionals from across the country on this conference call to discuss public relations issues in education. Now, be aware, this roundtable discussion was in two parts and done via a national conference call, and this information is substantial and long overdue. I am pleased to introduce our excellent panel, representing school districts from all areas of the nation and school systems, large, small, and in between. After the introductions, we will join the conference call and get an overview from Leslie Bruinton. And now, our panel. Leslie Bruinton. Public Relations Coordinator, Tuscaloosa City Schools, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Christy McGee, Director of Communications, Fountain, Fort Carson School District, Fort Carson, Colorado. Tom Scheidel, Public Information Coordinator, 
Allegan Area Education Service Agency, Allegan, Michigan. Amanda Puleo, Communications Coordinator, Churchville Chai School District, Churchville, New York. Trent Allen, Director of Communications, San Juan Unified School District, Carmichael, California. And Daniel Clark, Chief Communications Officer, Harris County Department of Education, Houston, Texas. And now, here's Leslie. Thanks so much, Dr. for participating in the podcast today. So much is going on in schools that is amazing, and people don't hear about it. So how is it that we're using our um, strategies and tactics to push the messaging of positive school PR to our target audiences? And I think part of that, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, I think school PR people were the first um, to utilize what is very popular in PR now as brand journalism. We've been doing that for years, using our own um, methods and channels and to push our own news out to our individual stakeholders. And we've been really blessed in years, in recent years, because we have, you know, direct access to our parents through our student information systems and emergency notification systems. And so we're able to target um, messaging directly to one of our primary stakeholders, but we still, you know, do things to businesses and retirees and volunteers and community and higher ed and whoever else that we're partnering with, nonprofit. Um, and so we function very similar to, I mean, exactly like a regular PR agency or professional, but we're dealing with multiple things on any given day. You could have an event, you could have um, a crisis, you could have um, a promotional thing, you could have a website crash, you could have a carnival, you could have a, a scandal you know, within your schools, you could have a natural weather disaster, and it could all occur on the same day. Mm-hmm. Right, guys? That's all fair. That's correct. That was, that was Tuesday. <laughs> I know, right? I was just thinking about my day yesterday. I'm like, oh. <laughs> you know, different size school districts. Like for myself, I'm a, I'm a one-person PR shop for the school district. So it's really balancing a lot of the, you know, social media, print media, events, you know, crisis that arise, um, weather issues, everything kind of trying to get it all balanced at once. And you know, struggling with so few people in local media, you know, really being responsible for our own brand journalism and um, trying to really focus on that when you're trying to take care of all of the other things too. And then you're dealing with families and parents and children and the things that matter most to parents. So it, it is quite a balancing act. Well, let me ask a question in one of those because I can see just from the locations that there's uh, a district, school districts in different sizes uh, there in terms of access to media. Are there success stories there? Are there problems with that? How is that working in, let's say, a small town versus a larger city? Well, this is Tom. I'll I'll speak to that real quickly in the fact that uh, our service agency, we we serve a, a county, we have a total enrollment of students in the county of uh, 14,000. So that's not even as big as, um, I think, Trent's single school district. And that's eight different school districts that we're serving. So we, we have no, we have, a, we have one uh, local weekly paper, and the closest TV stations are in the markets that are either north or south of us. So we really don't have a lot of media. So we very much, if we want to get the word out about anything, we have to do it ourselves using, you know, using social media, 
um, using our own uh, you know, uh, monthly newsletter, uh, getting information out to our locals so that they can disseminate it out to their parents, and, and that kind of thing. But that's, all, that's also a two-edged sword in the fact that a lot of times um, things that in a, in a larger local district the local media would be all over you about, we have no local media. I, co I call the editor of the paper and say, yeah, here's what's going on, and, and it's done. Um, I don't have to worry about a lot of reporters coming unless it's something you know, really major, which we've had. Um, so so we're, you know, we're not dealing with uh, the, the, you know, the former Civil War mascot uh, that the people in the, in the county don't want to change, or uh, the fact that the, the, the prom king came. You know, we don't have those kind of issues that we're dealing with um, on, a, on a daily basis like a, like a local district would be. So in essence, pretty much you get the kind of coverage you want because they take what you give them, and that's pretty much the way you get it done. Yes. Yep. Pretty. Pretty much. Um, okay. Like I said, unless it's a, unless it's. I mean, we did have a situation a couple of years ago where we had a, uh, the the principal of our uh, our special needs building uh, uh, molested uh, three teachers in the on property. Um, so yeah, we got lots of media coverage for that. Did you say principal? You said principal and three teachers. Yeah. Oh, no, okay. no students were involved, which is what we Not read Tuesday, with. But no students were involved in this, but um, yeah, and and it eventually um, one of the one of the teachers um, ended up uh, taking this. And, and uh, suing us over it, and then ended up uh, going all the way up to the Department of Justice. And it was a Title IX. We turned out we had a Title IX violation. Um, so, yeah, so we've, been, so we've been dealing with that for the last year. So this is something that happened literally four years ago. He was found guilty um, you know, pretty much you know, within the first six months, and we are still dealing with the fallout of this four years later. Well, what I would love to say was that, that I ran across a poll that said that uh, pretty much parents and teachers all have a pretty good uh, opinion of uh, their, uh, their public schools. And uh, it seems to be that that's continuing through the years, particularly their local schools. I mean, do you guys find that to be the case in, in each one of your areas? Everybody loves their individual school. But as soon as mm -hmm. you go outside of their individual school, um, it gets a little dicier. Um, and that mm -hmm. does make it a little hard when you're trying to build a unified brand and do that kind of brand messaging on the district level. Um, so that can be challenging for mm -hmm. us because certainly folks love their local elementary school where their kid walks to school and they know the teachers. Um, and when you expand beyond that very intimate level of relationship, um, that opinion starts to be more challenged from time to time. Um, so that is one of the challenges we face is how to build that brand where we can have some economies of scale in some of the communication work we do um, and not lose the advantage we have with those relationships we build on that smaller scale. Well, you know, that, that to me right now also sounds like one of the things to talk about. You know, how do you solve that problem? How have you solved it? And maybe different school districts solve it in different ways. One of the things that we've done in Tuscaloosa is try to develop the capacity of an individual school leader um, to feel more confident in their communication skills. When I first started with the school system um, more than a decade ago, I think people thought I was a district photographer. 
um, and I've had to work really hard mm -hmm. to shed that that opinion that I'm the district photographer. In this day and age, your students walk around with just as great as a camera on their cell phone as I had when I first started um, in the profession back in 2007. So to what Trent said, leveraging the um, likability of a building leader, of a classroom teacher to feel confident to go out and um, talk about what the school system is doing on brand, looping them into your communication plan. Because really when you think about it, anybody could be an ambassador for a school or a school system. Everyone knows someone connected to a school, whether you have a coworker who's a parent, a neighbor who's a teacher, um, you have a, you know, if you go to a, a, a church or a synagogue, um, you're coming in contact with people all at with coming in contact with people connected to schools at all times. And so, um, a lot of times when we're talking about communicating, we we're talking about talking to the media, talking to parents, maybe talking to students. But we've got to make sure that we're doing a strong job shoring up our internal audiences of our employees, so they can go out and share those good things that are happening as well. Um, particularly for a school system that has deficits of trust. You're not going to repair deficits of trust at the district level. That happens as granular. It happens at the school level where a principal can leverage their credibility on behalf of the district with stakeholders. Here in New York, uh, in the Rochester area, we actually have um, it's called a Community Together for Education, Act for Education, and it involves all of our rural suburban, our urban district, community leaders, and multiple businesses. And we all work really hard together um, just to share great stories in public schools that great things are happening every day in every school and in every district. And so we have um, social media. We have a website that really highlights all of the districts. If you go onto the website and you search STEM, you're going to get stories um, of STEM initiatives in a, several districts instead of just one local district. So that's kind of a way that we are working to really highlight public schools as a whole. Um, here in the county, collectively, all of the schools are really the largest employer in our county. So really highlighting all of that and all of the great things that we do and making sure that we're not pitting districts against each other, but we're sharing um, the same success stories. Do all the uh, principals at all the schools and, and uh, area superintendents, are they all big supporters of a good, solid public relations program for their their districts? Yes, here in New York, yes. I would say so because um, for principals who are following different edu leaders on Twitter or books they're reading or blogs they're reading, they're hearing about the power of social media, um, which mm -hmm. that's a great way to start the conversation with a building leader about how do you do community engagement, how do you connect with families. But for school systems that have a dedicated PR person, this is really just um, an entree onto that whole grander conversation about how do you do it well, how do you do it effectively, what are the best strategies to use, not tactics, because a lot of times what they're coming to you is, hey, we want a tactic. If you have the opportunity to sit down and coach someone about how to, how to implement a communication strategy, then that's the benefit of um, having that expertise and being able to share with your colleagues. Yeah, I, I would say in, in our county and then in, in Michigan in general, I, well, in Colorado County specifically, all the superintendents really do see the, the value of the, of the PR function. 
but they don't see the value when, necessarily when it comes to having a, a staff person. Um, there are only probably three people in our county out of, out of eight districts um, that have a, uh, a person who has uh, public relations either as a full-time position or in their title. Most of them are um, superintendent assistants who also do public relations. So a lot of those folks, they aren't, they aren't members of NSPRA, they aren't even members of our, of our state organization. And so a lot of what, uh, like what I'll do and a couple of others who our, our members do is we spend a lot of our time helping those, you know, those superintendents' assistants because they still have students to deal with, they still have a parent population, they still have a business population mm -hmm. that they're trying to get the message to, but they don't necessarily have the skill set. And so we're spent, we spend a lot of our time you know, uh, coaching them and, and helping them with resources and getting them materials so that they can get the, the correct messaging out to uh, their constituencies. Well, the thing I hear from that is, is there any way to, uh, again, you know, saying this at a distance, but having those uh, superintendents understand the need for it, or better still, the training so that those folks next to them can do a good job with what they do and be very effective at it. Is there resistance to, to that approach as well? I think maybe the job description for a school leader may be changing. You have a different demographic of parents who um, are expecting communication, are used to being able to um, interact with organizations with which they do business. So if you have bad experience at a restaurant or an airline, then you tweet and think you're going to get a response. That's kind of the conditioning that we have for our stakeholders. So we have, you know, I'm sure there are many principals that have been very resistant to change, but you got to go where the people are. And so as the expectations of our community have shifted and evolved for how they want to be um, receive their communication, I think the role of, of school leaders has shifted as well, that they have to be cognizant of this and put this tool in their tool belt because that's one of the questions that seems to be asked on a lot of um, principal interviews that I've been connected with is how are you going to communicate with your families? And that's also one of the biggest downfalls when a school leader trips is there's usually some form of communication that has elapsed that uh, response wasn't given on a timely basis. I think folks have looked around the room and seen those examples and those lessons um, which has brought them to understand the value. Um, we ran a communication kind of boot camp over the summer, voluntary for our site administrators, and the level of participation we got far ex exceeded what we expected um, because our site leaders were hungry for it. They understand that um, parents are communicating in new ways, but they also see the value in being able to have that toolbox um, and being able to reach out and connect with folks in so many different ways that they're seeking that skill set <laughs> out now, which is not what we've seen in the past. Well, since you have a toolbox like that, have you shared that with other either surrounding school districts or even beyond your uh, local geographic area? So our boot camp idea, we actually stole from a district in Arizona um, after hearing it on one of Ben's first calls. So we, we stole it from them, and then we are actually in talks with some of our surrounding districts to see if they would like to co-host this summer with us more of a regional event for our regional leaders because the skill sets are certainly transferable. It's not something that is uh, specific to a specific district or specific policies or practices necessarily. It's good, basic, solid communication skills. We do get into some of the specific tools we use, uh, but yeah, we are looking to spread that out and bring other folks in to really 
enrich that experience and expand what's being brought to the table and shared with each other. In Alabama, one of the things that we realized is that we would have no ability to affect change as far as convincing another school system to hire a PR person. And the approach that we took was that every school system may not have a dedicated PR person, but every school and every school system has a need to connect with its stakeholders. And so what we set about doing was developing a professional learning unit. We call them PLUs. You may call them a PLC or a PLG, wherever you are. But we developed a course, a module, for people to sign up through ALSPRA, that's Alabama School Public Relations Association, where we would walk you through what it would take to build your own strategic communications plan. So we did that, um, and I think that has helped a lot. I'm currently implementing that with a cohort of schools here in my district and leaving people with the idea that they can feel like they have skills in that area and feel confident in that area. Um, not every school system is going to be near a media market. Not every school system is going to have all of those tools, but kind of like the chopped basket. What do you have, and how can we use it to make sure that we're meeting our, our mm -hmm. goals and objectives? So a DIY is what we did. If I could just spin off what, okay. um, what Trent and uh, Leslie said, um, yeah, we are in school PR, we are very, we steal everything from each other. And that is one of the great things about NSPRA as an organization. When we go to the national conference, we hear great ideas and everybody's like really sharing. And so as Trent said, you know, he's in California, he picked up an idea from some people in Arizona and actually in Michigan. We're talking about doing the same thing, doing the doing the communication boot camp as part of one of our MSPRA conferences in the near future. So it's like if we see a good idea, it's like, yeah, everybody grabs onto it and, and uses it because one of the things about school PR is usually we don't have big budgets. Even even larger mm -hmm. school districts, the budget for PR is not very big. And we're, and since most we're, we're talking about publicly funded organizations, any money we do have comes from the taxpayers. So we have to be very careful about how we're using those funds. So if mm -hmm. we can find a good idea somewhere else, and we don't have to invent the whole thing ourselves, then that's going to be more uh, more co more cost advantageous to our constituencies. And, and we can still get some really, really good work done and get the information that we want to get out to, uh, to you know, our, our students, our parents, and our business communities. And that's what I think makes the national and state organizations so valuable to everybody because so many of our districts are limited and so many of our districts, like I am the communication coordinator and administrative <coughs> assistant to the superintendent, so I am limited on the time I can spend on creating programs. So having all of those connections, it's you know, like having a whole team to work with when it's not in your budget. So I find it very valuable to, to be part of both of those organizations. We have a smaller local organization as well, uh, but really being part of the state and national organization and having that support and really sharing the wealth of knowledge is, I think, what makes all of us more successful. And it really is a differentiator. I was just, it's a differentiator between the rest of the public relations industry because while we have PRSA and some of those other things, the connections amongst the school folks are just at a deeper level with more support structures, it seems. Mm -hmm. Having been a PRSA member for many years, longer than I've been a, an ENSPR member, you, you certainly see those connections and benefits on that side too, but the level of sharing and the level of colleague collegiality on the school side, you know, 
the head of Bank of America's PR and Wells Fargo are certainly going to be friendly and know who each other are, but they're not probably going to call up when they have their biggest crisis coming down saying, hey, what would you do? And that's not necessarily the case for us because we're not necessarily in the same type of situation. We're not as competitive necessarily. And so it's really about mm-hmm. sharing those good pieces. And I think that does set us apart from the rest of the industry a little bit as far as how the practitioner actually operates. The only other piece I would add to that is that in schools, the, the other differentiating factor is we're dealing with people's children. We're not dealing with, a, I mean, money's pretty emotional, but we're not dealing with a widget or a shirt or a pair of shoes or whatever. We're dealing with people's children. So everything that we do right. has some sort of emotional connection to it. And so um, emotions can run high. And so we're dealing with people at, at their most basic level within their family, and we're getting to know them on a very intimate and personal level. And I think other PR practitioners would be quite envious of that because we have true connections with our stakeholders um, on an intimate, personal level, and um, they entrust us with their most valuable, precious thing in the world every single day. And we honor that gift and recognize that that privilege and um, do the very best that we can. And sometimes things mess up and sometimes things are amazing, but that connection between a school and the parent is just precious. And um, um, it's different, and it makes our work different. It probably makes it a little more personal and a little more intimate, I think. And so I think we all take great pride in that and find it to be quite a noble endeavor. Well, you know, one of the reasons that I brought up the uh, questions that I did, because here in Nashville, we had a superintendent who left sometime last year, but had a crisis in terms of water in the public school, that the water was found to be tainted or some chemicals and so forth and so on, which was a major problem. But she did not take the lead in trying to, uh, as you said, uh, bring comfort to the parents that they're going to do whatever they could do to fix the problem. She sent out one of his uh, lower-level PR people, which, from my point of view, was a mistake because something that big uh, and, and system-wise, he should have taken the leadership in that. So that's why I asked the question about maybe principals and superintendents having a course in PR so they understand the benefits of communicating with their uh, communities and parents when it's absolutely necessary. Can I, I want to speak to that real quickly. I think a lot of times you have entities that are trying to offer superintendents and principals that support and that training, but I don't think it goes deep enough. I'm a former television reporter. And a lot of times what I see is them offering media relations training. Never say no comment. Don't wear stripes. Those types of things. (laughs) That doesn't go far enough and is not helpful for people that live in some rural outlying school system community where there is no media, where that's not going to happen. That does not help you gear up for the angry crowd who feels like you have messed with their most precious treasure, their children. That does not help a community mm-hmm. that feels like you squandered their tax dollars. Mm. No comment doesn't, no, knowing not to say no comment doesn't help. So right. I am an advocate of making sure that you're looking beyond tactics of dress up when you get on TV and say something other than no comment before rather than going out there with a plan and what do we want to communicate and what do we want people to walk away with. It's like, I know they're mad in this situation, but what do they need to know? And how do you redirect that that hot energy into channeling the energy for what's good for kids and how do we all work together to take us to the next level? So my just kind of personal, professional pet peeve would be, I would like to see the training opportunities for superintendents and school leaders to be to be 
something more than superficial mm-hmm. because it doesn't serve them well when they really hit a speed bump. And now let's join the second segment of our roundtable. Why don't we go around uh, our conference table here, so to speak, and hear about some of the public relations successes and challenges that each of you have in your school districts. Who would like to start there? Sure. Uh, my name is Tom Scheidel. I'm the uh, public information coordinator in Allegan, Michigan. Uh, we are a very rural area. Uh, we service eight different local school districts here in, uh, in the southwest corner of Michigan. And uh, a few years back, uh, one of our successes was we had a, uh, a county uh, election. Uh, we have uh, things in Michigan called millages, uh, and that's how we are funded. And so we were looking for an enhancement millage to, uh, to fund our uh, technical, career and technical education and also our special education services that we offer to the county. And it, it was a, because of the way we're set up, even though it was a county-wide election, it had to be voted on by each individual school district. So we pulled together the uh, communications people from each of the locals, uh, Together, we ended up uh, uh, building uh, a lot of social media, the, uh, uh, a special website. We put together uh, pro- brochures and posters and all of that, um, all on our own. We, uh, we kind of put together an ad hoc uh, uh, PR agency for a few months to, uh, to do all the work. And when all was said and done, the proposals passed, and it's, it related to $2.1 million of additional money uh, coming into our local districts uh, be, because of that election, because of that, we won that election. Um, so that was a, a, a big success for, for us. And uh, something that I know, $2.1 million for, for larger districts doesn't sound like a lot of money, uh, but when you're in a very rural district, I mean, we have a, a total of 14,000 students in the whole county. And so for us to be able to pull in that kind of uh, additional money for uh, special education and career technical education really has made a a big difference for uh, the students that we serve. Well, just in terms of an outcome, how has the, what has been the outcome? Once you got the students enrolled and they participated, did you see some additional benefit from that having happened? Yes, what we are able to do, especially with our, our, our career technical education, uh, there's been a big push for that in Michigan um, over the last few years. Uh, really looking at, uh, uh, looking at there's a lot of students who, you know, are not necessarily on a track for college, but there are lots of good paying jobs that are available with either um, some technical training or maybe an associate's degree or something like that. So uh, by adding in, by, by getting that additional, uh, those additional funds uh, for our, our technical center, uh, we were able to uh, expand uh, three of our areas, our, our, our CNC lab, um, our uh, welding lab, and, uh, and just did an upgrade on our culinary arts program. And because of this, we'll be able to bring in uh, state-of-the-art uh, uh, machinery and uh, really give the, the, the students a lot more room and a lot more real-life work experience uh, as, they're, uh, as they're going through the Tech Center programs. That's going to enable those students then, when they graduate in a year or two, uh, to go out and, and find a good job in the area 
or if they desire to go on to a community college or a college and continue their, continue their studies. Um, so again, those funds really, um, you know, they're 100% they're going to help the programs which are going to help our students become successful later in life. You know, one of the things, I just want to add this, and one of the things that I have read and a lot of, and understand that a lot of people do not talk about is the high demand for kids or, or students with two-year degrees. Uh, one, and depending on which area you're looking in, some of those are very high-paying jobs, particularly in the technology area. Believe it or not, wind turbine technology, I think, has starting salaries up in the fifty to $60,000 range, and, and they're having problems getting enough people to fill those jobs. So that's something that I think that people really need to further understand that two-year degrees can take you a long way, believe it or not. It's very, it's very true. So who's next? How, uh, Amanda, Trent? How sure, I'll hop in. Okay. Yep, so Amanda Paleo, Churchville Child Light Communication Coordinator um, in, in Churchville, New York, which is uh, right outside of Rochester. We're a suburban school, K-12, with just under 4,000 4, students. And here in New York, I know it's not the same in every state, but here in New York, we have to have our budget approved by our voters every year. So we have a budget vote in May. And, you know, that's really challenging for us because as far as um, any, you know, local or state budgets, the county budget, none of those budgets um, are voted on by the people in the community except for ours. So sometimes when there's, you know, an increase in the state budget or the county budget and they're taking a hit on their taxes there, they tend to want to take it out on the school district because that's the place, the only place that they have a voice. So for us, it's really important to, throughout the year, really highlight the opportunities and services that we provide for all of our students. Um, in order to get the buy-in during vote time. We don't want to, you know, we want to make sure that they understand and have a clear understanding of what services we're providing for students year-round, not just something that we're doing in May, but really making sure that they're invited into the schools, that we're using our social media, our website, our district app, any way we can to communicate with our, with our voters year-round um, to gain that support. And we have we have fortunately been very successful in our budget votes. I've been here in the district for 12 years. Um, we have, our budget has passed every year. I think the Board of Education works really hard with the superintendent and business official to make sure that we have a fiscally responsible budget, that we're not increasing taxes more than our uh, community can handle. So fortunately, we've been really lucky in uh, having those approved each year. Well, I'm very glad to hear you say that. I have a political background, and I know how, how important it is to keep the public informed and so that they can clearly see the benefits that are, are coming from how their tax dollars are spent. It sounds like you guys are doing a great job with that. Uh, who's next on the, uh, to speak up about how you guys are doing? So uh, this is Trent in San Juan Unified out in the uh, Sacramento area. I'll go next. Um, and to go along with the theme, uh, we have, um, I'm thankful we don't have to approve our entire budget with the voters, uh, but we don't have money in our ongoing budget for facilities. And as a district that was really built during the boom phase after World War II, most of our schools were built in the early 1950s, and they're really coming to a time where they're in some need of some serious repair or even replacement. Um, so we did a facility study, identified over $2 billion in facilities needs, 
and uh, had really no way to pay for that except to go out to our local voters and ask them to fund facilities bonds. Um, we've done that several times now, and I'm happy to say that um, in kind of back-to-back -back elections, uh, we were able to pass a $250 million bond, and then at the next four-year election cycle, another $750 million election uh, for a total of about a billion dollars that are going towards our facilities over the next several years. And that's really been transformational for us. And when you think about schools and having communities where, at least in our community, about 70% of our folks don't necessarily have a direct connection to us. They don't have somebody who's enrolled in our schools currently. They might have graduated from our schools or had a grandkid in our schools, but that direct connection for a lot of our voters um, is that they kind of drive by and they see us. Um, to be able to have strong community support to pass that level of, of bond uh, was a heavy lift for us. Uh, but we were able to do that, and it's really been transformational. And that we're now taking some of those school facilities that were built in the early 1950s, um, in some cases we're totally knocking them down to the ground and building entirely new facilities that are modern, built for safety and security, um, built for modern teaching and learning methods, um, and really revitalizing some of our communities that are perhaps not as energized as they once were as they've had some change in their community as well. Um, so it's really making a huge impact not only in our schools and the uh, quality of uh, the instruction that's going on there, but also building that community support uh, within the region uh, for the schools and for the community itself. So it's really been transformational for uh, the community as a whole. Uh, Trent, real quick, uh, I mean, it sounds like that was very, very successful, particularly for that amount of money. Can you talk briefly about some of the programs, the projects, activities you actually did that helped uh, convince the uh, uh, your community that they need to sign off on uh, uh, on that uh, money that you needed? Yeah, so certainly uh, really trying to lay the foundation and have um, some level of interaction with folks on a consistent, ongoing basis, even when we're not necessarily out there asking for money, uh, was in a very important part of that. Um, Outside of that, it was really about building a group of community supporters uh, who, during that campaign time, really were able to help carry that message. Um, and some of those folks were certainly people who were involved with the school system directly, and some of those folks were just community uh, members who really understand the value of education and the importance it plays both for our children and for the greater community as a whole. Um, and they were really instrumental in uh, being out there and talking at some of those uh, meet-and-greet opportunities, so your Kiwanis meetings, your Lions Clubs, uh, those breakfasts, being out there face-to-face, -face, talking with people, building those relationships, answering questions for folks. Um, there was certainly um, a campaign committee that relied on some level of social media and advertising, um, but really the bulk of the work was old-fashioned um, politicking and going to where people were, talking to them, um, and uh, going door-to-door -door with door hangers and, and conversation with our teachers association, our uh, classified staff and their union uh, pitched in. Um, and again, a lot of different community groups uh, really came to the table and helped out. So it was really a community effort. So I guess in today's terms, we could probably say that you use a lot of community influencers. Absolutely. Um, folks who uh, are out there talking a lot and that people listen to. Okay. Now, I did hear a, a bell. Did someone chime in? It was lovely. It disconnected, so I just called again. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Well, uh, Danielle, how about mm -hmm. you? How 
successes that you've had there. So here's, uh, this is Danielle Clark from Harris County Department of Ed in um, Houston, Texas. Uh, we are kind of like Tom. We're a support agency, um, but on a much larger scale, we support 25 school districts with over a million students um, in Harris County, which is the third largest county in the country. Um, and so what we do is we offer a lot of different services, but one of the things that we do is we offer our special schools, and our superintendent likes to say that our, our job is to find the blind spots in public education in the area. So um, about a year and a half ago, they set out to um, set up a recovery school for students who are suffering from addiction, either from substance abuse, alcohol, um, and then we're also branching out into other types of addictions. Um, and so right now, in the last year and a half, we went from six students um, last year to over 50 this year um, from the different varying um, supporting agencies in the area. And these students come in and it's a paradigm shift from a punishment of students in, you know, with drug and alcohol abuse to um, one of support and recovery. So uh, instead of punishing kids who don't do their homework or fall off the wagon or whatever, it's more of a support. And so we have um, emerged as the second largest public um, high school for recovery in the country. Um, we have a $500,000 ropes course that teach leader, teaches leadership in the back. We have a professional culinary kitchen. Um, they revamped an old uh, kind of an office building, high school type um, building for it. And what we found is that these are students who are getting lost um, in the cracks with their districts. And as word has gotten out, we have parents that are going to the districts and asking the districts to buy a seat at the school so that their child can not only go through recovery and rehabilitation, but stay in school and continue on their path to success. So instead of having kids who are dropping out or becoming part of the criminal system for drug offenses, et cetera, um, they're turning their lives around within a model of support, and they're going on to college, and they're getting culinary degrees, and they're getting SAFE certified, and things like that. And so it has been a tremendous success. Um, we had our first graduate last um, May, and um, we're looking forward to more as the years go forward. Well, that sounds great. Uh, Leslie, how about you? The big thing that we're pretty excited about here in Tuscaloosa is that the mayor enrolled a signature program to um, elevate the education experience in the economy. And as part of his Elevate plan, his signature plan, he earmarked um, about $25 million for our local school system over the course of the next decade. And those monies would be directed to fund additional pre-K units or additional pre-K seats for students. Um, our summer learning program, which we've gotten a lot of recognition for, to be able to offer seats to students in grades K through 3. And then um, I would say probably the crown jewel of this would be um, the dual enrollment scholarships that he's offering. So any eligible high school senior will be able to take up to six hours of um, college credit at any of the three institutions of higher learning in Tuscaloosa. Um, completely free. Their books, their tuition, fees. So we rolled this out last month. Um, let's see. Well, I guess it's this month. It's almost next month. But we rolled this out in January. Um, and I've gotten a lot of positive feedback. So our students will begin, those who are eligible, will begin um, the opportunity to start selecting courses. And I think um, one of the things that's really significant about this program 
the whole complement of programs that he's put into his platform is that once we started calculating the educational value of what Elevate offers for people in our community, you're looking at around $11,000 between mm. not paying for pre-K for that four-year-old year, um, pay, offering summer learning um, at, a, at a really an affordable rate for families for about a month or so every summer from kindergarten to third grade, and then of course that senior year um, with the up to six hours college credit. And um, as part of making Tuscaloosa a more livable community, a more marketable community. These are opportunities that have kind of been extended only to children who live in the city limits. So um, we started seeing things as we rolled it out on social media. You know, make sure you don't leave money on the table if your if your child is in high school. Um, why can't this happen in our community? So I would say this is a, a real feather in our cap as we roll this out. We're super proud of the opportunity it provides for students. Um, to access different levels of education um, throughout and reap the benefits of the Elevate program that he's established. You know, one of the common themes that, that, that I'm hearing here is that school systems do more than just teach students. Uh, they're a part of the community, and they, uh, as I just listened to you, uh, uh, Leslie, talk about, uh, you know, helping uh, kids uh, uh, get into uh, higher education by extra, uh, extra courses. Uh, Daniel mentioned something about uh, drug problems helping with that. So you've got a lot of uh, things to juggle as a school system in addition to your basic job of teaching st uh, students successfully. Is, is that roughly correct? I would agree with that. I think schools play um, a huge part in creating conditions for workforce development. So as if you're in a community where you have growing industry and lots of businesses springing up and new families moving in, whether or not your school system is in a community where charter schools exist, you are still competing for families. And so how do you make, what complement of um, opportunities does your, your community and your school system and your local schools have that make you an attractive, competitive, uh, choice for families. So when school systems and cities work together um, to bring the quality of life and that standard of living up for all citizens, that's a good thing. We all reap benefits from that. And of course, with more folks coming in, then you may have the opportunity for increased tax revenues however your community collects the, the revenues. Let me also ask you again, uh, or not again, but at least to talk about public relations successes and challenges that you have in each one of your uh, districts. I'm not sure your show's long enough to, for us to get into a lot of the challenges. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, give me an abbreviated version. <laughs> well, this was like, my biggest first? challenge was my biggest challenge was in 2011 when an EF4 tornado hit three of our schools um, and destroyed them. And so that is not necessarily you know we all have crisis plans, but your crisis plan is. First, to some degree, kind of the nebulous boogie monster, um, boogeyman that may that may come out um, and shake up things. I think as school public relations has evolved and the profession has evolved, 
we now have more specific chapters in those crisis plans. The early ones were things like if something bad happens, the superintendent talks. Mm -hmm. But when you have a tornado hit three of your schools, um, you really are needing to implement crisis communication um, in kind of a three-dimensional chess way. You've got the immediate needs of families. You've got to be able to let folks know when you'll be able to reopen the school. You've got, the, in our case, the tornado happened toward the end of the month, so if people want to know, do I get my check this month? I have some bills that I... Oh, I think we lost her again. I think so. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you a quick question, because one of the things that she was talking about, obviously, a crisis communications plan. I'm making the assumption that all school districts have crisis communications plans and how they're going to be implemented, and uh, are they tweaked on a regular basis at all? Uh, this is Danielle. I would say that all school districts have a crisis plan. Whether they have a crisis communication plan, I think, depends on the foresight of their um, superintendent. Leslie, it sounds like you're back. He's asking if all districts, it sounds like all schools have crisis communications plans. And I was just saying, I think they have crisis plans. I don't know um, who's responsible for that. Here at Churchill Chile, anyway, we do have, um, you know, building safety response plans um, and a district level plan, and we do have the communication piece incorporated into it. I am part of the, the emergency response team, so that whether it's at the building level or um, at a district level, that we're really kind of shoulder to shoulder with the people running things and making sure that, you know, things are being communicated with staff or parents or students, whatever the necessary uh, message is, that it's getting done in a timely manner. So I'm fortunate to be included in that, um, really at the front lines, in mm -hmm. order to make sure that we are communicating with parents. And I think that it's been working well because with a, you know, a small crisis or a larger one, when parents want to know what's going on, you know, they're trusting us to give them information and they're not storming down the doors to get their kids and get their kids out because they don't know what's going on. You know, we're making sure that whether it's the secretary at the building, you know, every building office, I make sure they ha all have the same message. So as parents start calling, they're getting um, that message. No matter what office you're in, you have that message. You're getting updated messages. With the media, we're making sure that we, you know, give an update and tell them the next time we'll provide an update, and then we're doing that. Even if it's okay, we still don't have information, but we said we're going to come back and talk to you, so we're back talking to you. So just making sure, and it's kind of, it is a process. I mean, it takes time to build that trust in the community when something is going on that you are going to get those responses. And, and I think the reason that we're so successful here in Churchill Chile is because I'm right there, you know, on the front lines with the administrators really going through it with our feet to the fire. And, and I'd like to follow up on, on what you just said there, too, because you mentioned doing that preliminary work, you know, having, being a member of the community, especially helpful when it comes to dealing with the media. Like when Leslie, for example, when you have a tornado, you know, there's really no way to prepare for that, and there's no way to prep anybody in, it, in advance from a media standpoint. But when you have um, staff misconduct, for, for, for example, which we've had to deal with on a couple of occasions, the social media and the, and the, the, the non-social media, the backroom chatter, can just blow up instantly. And if you haven't spent the time beforehand to build good relationships in the community and have built good relationships with your local um, newspapers and radio stations and television stations, then, then you're, 
It's going to be hard for you when something bad happens to all of a sudden say, no, 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 it's not that way. Let, listen to me mm-hmm. when, when, you haven't, when the only time you talk to the media is when there's a crisis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, when we, when we had a situation a few years ago when one of our uh, building principals was accused of some staff misconduct, I was able to call uh, the editor of our local newspaper and say, you know, even before it was released by the by police, I was able to call him and say, okay, this has happened. Here's what's going on. When I, when I have more to tell you, I'll be able to tell you. But because we had a long-term relationship, he was willing to listen to me as opposed to just getting something off the police blotter and running with it without talking to us first. And let me, let me add on that to that, Tom. This is Danielle, real quick. I think it's a really good point. The other point is um, when you do that with your community throughout the year and you build that relationship and you build that trust, when a crisis does happen, they're more, they're more likely to seek you out for the answer and to come to your channels to find out what the true story is rather than just blindly going to what um, some random comment on social media or um, a speculation on the local media may be. So building that trust throughout the year is critical so that when you do have a crisis, you can um, dip in the piggy bank and pull out some of that um, credibility and that um, relationship and and rely on that. And um, that's huge when you're trying to get through a crisis and get people to not panic and um, to, you know, be aware of what's happening with the community and the children. Let me just add to that. I think that uh, having gone through several uh, major crises myself, the idea of having ongoing solid relationships with the media certainly pays a lot of dividends. I mean, some solid dividends. I was, when uh, the uh, president of a university I was working for suddenly resigned, I actually had a, a reporter track me down to uh, get a response. He was at a hockey game. I was someplace else, but uh, because we had a relationship, he wound up printing every everything I said word for word uh, uh, response. So I, I've always tipped my hat to them and always encourage people to do whatever you can, have a solid relationship with uh, your local media. And another benefit of that, too, is if you've got a parent who's irate and upset in calling you know, television stations trying to get their story covered and it's completely twisted. You know, if you have that relationship with the media and they call and they're like, okay, what's going on? And you can kind of explain in a nice way, you know, it's been blown out of proportion. It is twisted. You you know, you don't have the full story, but it's not as significant as this person is making it sound to have that trust with the media, you know, so they don't, so they don't think you're like, hiding something from them or whatever, but that you're being sincere and honest, and it really isn't a, isn't a huge issue. You know, that saves you a lot of headache moving forward. But again, it's taking that time in advance to build those relationships, being willing to let them in to your buildings and your districts at other times um, when they're looking to do um, an educational interest story so that you have that relationship when stuff kind of hits the fan and it's not accurate. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you, somebody touched on it a wee bit earlier in terms of how do your various superintendents of your uh, school systems, how do they approach the media? Where do they stand on that? This is Danielle. So my superintendent has what, what I would term a, a love-hate relationship sometimes with the media. He understands the role that they play, and he was respectful that they have a job to do. Um, he can get irritated when things come off as one-sided and is, um, can be quick to 
you know, question the direction of a story. But I think, you know, with communi- when superintendents have a solid communications person next to them, they begin to understand that, you know, not only the district, but the media play a role in our community, and um, we both serve a purpose. And as long as we can keep it, you know, professional and understand that we both have um, bosses that we report to and we both have, you know, ideas and things that we want to get across, but that we can meet in the middle and that there is a place for us to collaborate and to work together for the greater good of the community. Sometimes um, you're, I like to say, sometimes you're on the same side of the table and sometimes you're on opposing sides of the table, but that doesn't mean that you have to be, you know, snarky or nasty or anything like that. So I would say my superintendent, he embraces the media. He's been known to um, have a very controversial story come and they, you know, the reporter will be saying some pretty ugly things about a school or a student or whatever, a situation, and he'll bring them in and he'll sit them down and he'll talk to them and his last question is, okay, ask me absolutely anything. And um, he's, mm-hmm. he just takes him off guard with his honesty and his candor. So that's how I would characterize um, my superintendent. But I've had um, eight different superintendents in my career, and they have all varied in their relationship with, this, um, with the press. Some feared them, some loved them, some didn't want anything to do with them. It can become quite a personal thing, and that's just been my experience right, so far. Understood, and I, and I certainly agree with you with, uh, with his approach on that. Uh, anyone else want to respond to that? Well, what I was going to say is I, I think uh, it, it's hard to draw just one, uh, one circle that would incorporate all the superintendents. Every, everyone is an individual, and uh, again, since with what, what we do here, we deal with so many different superintendents, we've got the same thing, whereas like some of them are very comfortable with the media, some of them are very good communicators, and some are not. And the media always wants to hear from the superintendent, even though from a district standpoint that your superintendent might not be the best person to trot out there as a, uh, as a spokesperson. That's where it's incumbent on us who are in the PR profession to really help the superintendent with either helping them be more comfortable when they're dealing with the media or figuring out if, if the superintendent isn't going to be the person talking, who are we going to put out there when, when we need to have a spokesperson, um, but working closely. And I think that, that goes to the heart of what the PR position really is in a school system. Um, I heard somebody say not too long ago that really in any school system, there are only two generalists. Everyone else is a specialist. They're a teacher or they're, a, they're an accountant or they're a bus driver. The only two generalists are the superintendent and the PR person. And, and so we are the ones who touch pretty much everything that goes on in the system. So having that close working relationship between the PR person and the superintendent is very, very important to the, to the overall health, really, of the organization so that the messages are getting out there correctly and are getting out to the right people. And when the bad things happen, we, we have a plan that we can all follow. Very well said. Let me just ask in closing, is there anything else that uh, you believe that uh, listeners should know and understand about the public relations issues in public schools? This is uh, Trent again, and um, you know, I think what I would reflect on is just the fact that our schools really do reflect our communities, mm-hmm. and that is becoming a much more challenging experience and an experience that's also filled with more opportunities as we go along. And as we look at especially political and social issues, people are becoming more active in many ways. And when that plays out on the corporate level, you have 
boycotts of products, and that's fine and dandy one way or the other. But when those issues play out in our schools, whether it's somebody's not happy with the curriculum that's being adopted, you know, it's it's not widgets or chicken fillet burgers that are in the middle of the conversation. It's kids, and that brings a whole nother level and a whole nother dynamic to the work that I think we do because people care so passionately. It's you know the thing that is probably the most important part of their life, their children, uh, that we work with every day and support every day. So it really does bring a, a dynamic to it that is, again, both rewarding and challenging at the same time. It's really important to um, remember that unlike a, a company who may be selling a product or um, a beverage or whatever, we... We accept all students, regardless of race or gender or ability or economic status, and we work with those, with those families to make sure that we are providing the best education, the best opportunities to every student to find success wherever that may be, whether it is going on to college or finding a trade to work in or entering the workforce, that we're making sure that we're raising and helping assist raise you know, strong, successful students who are contributing members of our, you know, interconnected society and that we've got, you know, all of our future leaders are here and making sure that we remember when we're dealing with, you know, whether it's a political issue or outside whatever's going on, that we're really focused on the students and making the students our priority and making sure that we're sharing with our parents and community, however we're doing it, that uh, they really understand that we do want what's best for their children, and we are, we are doing our best to help them become successful. And it doesn't look the same for every student, but that is where our focus is as a student. And so sometimes we get kind of bogged down by, you know, all of the adult stuff, and we forget that the students are our responsibility, making sure that they're receiving the best, and every student can be successful. Well said, Mandy. Thanks. <laughs> I, I agree with that. Well, let me say that uh, this has been a very, very interesting and enticing conversation. Uh, and quite honestly, I think we should do this again uh, sometime in the near future. And I want to thank uh, each and all of you for uh, joining us today and hope that we can do this again. And I also want to thank all of our listeners for uh, listening to the uh, Public Relations Review. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, let's do it again sometime. Yeah, sure. definitely. We've got plenty of stuff to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> This podcast is produced by Communication Strategies, an award-winning public relations and public affairs firm headquartered in Nashville, Tennessee. Thank you for joining us. Hi, this is Peter Woolfolk speaking. Now, first of all, thank you so very much for listening to the podcast. Now, I am very excited to let you know that the podcast is now available on Amazon Alexa. You know the drill. Simply say, Alexa, play Public Relations Review Podcast, and she'll take it from there. And again, thank you for listening. And if you enjoy the program, please become a subscriber. Now, on to the podcast. <laughs>